Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guest is librarian, lawyer, knowledge management, computer programmer, blogger, and podcaster renaissance man, Greg Lampert. Like so many of our multi-hyphenate guests, Greg is a very busy man. Many of you will know Greg from his long-running blog, Three Geeks in a Law Blog, which was founded in 2008 and is one of the first blogs to focus on what we now think of as the business of law. Greg also co-hosts the Geek and Review podcast, which dives into the world of legal information professionals. And if that wasn't enough, Greg also has a day job as the Chief Knowledge Services Officer at Jackson Walker. Greg thinks of himself as a connector who puts a spotlight on the innovative folks in our industry and connects them with others who have similar goals. Today, we put the spotlight on Greg to learn more about his unique journey. Listen in as we talk shop about podcasting, geek out over guests, and learn a little bit about how Greg is innovating the role of law librarian. Enjoy the listen. Thanks for making the time. It's great to meet you. I've been following your work for a while. Yeah, I've, I've been following yours as well. Marlene and I, when you started this, it was pretty exciting because by about the time you had your seventh episode out or so, we were like, Steve's going through a, a list of people that we've had. And so it was kind of fun because it was a different take from the way that we had talked with them. So it was uh, really exciting to listen to the different perspectives from the same people. Yeah, it was cool. We we have overlapped a fair amount. I swear we're not copying you. We're That's really, all right. No, no, no. Bob Ambrogi and I have a uh, running gag where we're each other's uh, second favorite podcast after our own. And uh, <laughs> but there's there's been times where it goes back to when we launched. We launched like a week before Bob launched his podcast. And so he was like, oh, you beat me to the punch. And then there's been times where we've had someone like he was going to have them on that week and we had them on that week and vice versa. So we definitely have uh, traveled down the same trail. I just listened to the the one you did this week with the Harvard. David Wilkins. Oh, my God. He is amazing. That was great. David's an amazing guy. I first saw him at the first LCLD meeting 10 years ago, and he gave a presentation on diversity in the legal industry. And it was one of the most informative yet inspiring presentations on legal diversity I had ever seen and have still ever seen. And I've been a fan of his work. Uh, yeah, it was great. And, and I mean, he was just, uh, you know, he was just rattling off all of these different things that are happening in the industry and it was just spot on, just, you know. And the amazing, there's, there's a huge backstory with David that he's got a, a whole series on the history makers, which is the online yeah. oral history of particularly influential people of color. And uh, to hear him talk about his dad, his grandfather, who are barrier breaking black lawyers in Chicago is really amazing. He's got it. He's got his own clerkship for Marshall. I, w- I would love to listen to more of that. Thurgood Marshall was one of my heroes uh, when I was in college and, and learning more about all the, and I went to University of Oklahoma for law school. And so there was a big case that he brought to desegregate the law school there. So it's, it's really interesting history behind that. And I think probably one of the most forgotten heroes of history. Just amazing how little people talk about all the stuff he's done. So Yeah, he had, a, he had an amazing career. I remember his son was a year behind me in law school. 
And it was just awesome. Just get to know uh, his son just a little bit and have that t- even attenuated yeah. connection to someone I've admired for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. You're from Oklahoma, right? I joined the army and got stationed at Fort Sill. Like graduated high school in, in Northeast Mississippi in a very small high school. We had 49 in our graduating class. Uh, Mississippi. Corinth is the main town, which is about 50 miles north of Tupelo, just right on the Tennessee border. And my mom and two sisters are still there. In fact, I got to, uh, I got to present to the Mississippi Library Association this week and it was nice to, to bring that in. But, uh, I was born, uh, up in Rockford and lived there till I was a teenager. And then we moved down to Mississippi, which is where my parents were originally from. So their family was there. And then I couldn't get out of there soon enough. So I, I literally turned 18 May 31st, graduated high school on June 1st and was in basic training on June 3rd and never returned. But you went to, after you got out of service, you went to law school and master's of library science simultaneously, which is a fascinating academic choice. I I will forewarn you, my wife has had many careers and one of them is as a librarian. So I have a particular fondness for the library sciences. So I completely understand that, but why tack law school onto uh, the master's of library science? Well, I, I kind of did it the other way around. So I was in law school and I wasn't supposed to, but it, I had to. I was working full time because I just couldn't afford otherwise. But my wife was a librarian and still is a librarian. And by about the time I finished up my first year at uh, law school, I realized I'm not very good at this. Uh, I don't know that <laughs> I, I really, I, I mean, <laughs> I like had that feeling, Greg. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, you know, I, and the thing about a three-year program like law school is by the time you realize that maybe this isn't for you, you're almost done. So you're like, oh, well, I might as well go ahead and finish it up anyway. And my wife had talked to me and said, well, have you thought about going to, to library school? We've got a library school right here. Why don't you, you know, just take a take a couple of courses, see if you like it. Talk with the law librarians there. Nikki Singleton was the library director at, at OU at the time, and she was great and kind of like directed me in the, in the right way. They didn't have a dual degree program, so I had to take each one and, and meet all the criteria to do each of them individually. But uh, it was good. I love the library sciences, just the information and the people and their willingness to collaborate and share and talk to each other. It's one of the things that I love about law librarianship, and it's why I'm so involved in the American Association of Law Libraries, because you get so much back from from what you give in. It's been an interesting, I would say fascinating, transformational part of the industry. I mean, law libraries were one thing when I was in law school many, many, many decades ago. And they're very different functions now. And you've been there for a lot of that transition. How have you seen it sort of evolve and change over the years? Yeah. um, So it's funny. I I got started um, actually when I was in law school. I worked at the main library at OU, but I did the uh, cataloging system, uh, the computer system. So I was actually on an old IBM ES9000 mainframe, the big blue and white machines Those that took up an, awesome. entire, an entire room. So that's that's kind of how I cut my teeth on being a programmer and, and understanding technology and advancements there. But the last 30 years in law librarianship has been 
just one transition after another. And there's just been, you know, I could rattle off a list of, you know, there's there was Y2K, there was the dot-com bus, there was the Google explosion. So, you know, everyone's saying, why do we need libraries? We've got it on Google. You can't call yourself a librarian. You got to be a media specialist or an information professional or you got to be this. And it was funny because once the pandemic hit, but one of the things we had been saying over and over is the library is no longer about the space. It used to be like that was the crown jewel of a large law firm was its library space because that's where they would take clients through and show them, you know, just how immaculate this, you know, this collect. Look at all this knowledge that we have here. And those are one of the first things to go whenever there would be a move in the office. And so I've been preaching for you know 20 years now about not trying to identify the library as a space, but rather as a service. And so when the pandemic hit, one of the interesting things were judges were trying to say courts are not about the space that they're in. It's about the service that they provide to the community. And so I was talking with judges and I was like, go talk to your librarians because they've been fighting this fight for 20 years and they understand what it means to show about the service that you're providing and get you off of the thought of, well, that service can't be provided because that place doesn't exist. And so, uh, you know, it's been one of, one of the interesting things about the pandemic is because we've gone through crisis like this for so many years, I think we're really experienced on how to make these transitions where other people in the profession have not been under as, as much pressure as we have. Yeah. So what have you learned about sort of the change management dynamics involved in law firms as a result? Because you've been through these changes for 20 or 30 years, one right after another, sort of what have you learned about how to manage that dynamic within the legal space? It's really interesting because law firms, especially, and I imagine it's the same for universities and and courts and and maybe even in-house for the longest time, If it wasn't on fire, there was no need to change it, that there had to be a crisis in order for a law firm to adjust. And I'll give you a good example, one that relates to you. So when Cyfarth did their Lean Sigma program and was promoting about the efficiencies that they were doing, I had a friend who's a CIO and she went to the managing partner at her firm and was like, hey, I love this idea that what they're doing over there, I think we should trial this and see if there's some legs to it. Let's do a prototype on this. Let's see if we can get this to work. And she said he literally turned in his chair, grabbed the April edition of the American Lawyer off of his shelf, opened up the AMLA 100 list, ran his finger down the page and said, oh, well, Seifarth is down here and we're up here. They've got nothing to tell us and put it back. (laughs) And that was the end of the story. And so it's just, you know, it's trying to get into the minds of the powers that be that need to change. I think that's one of the things that need to really think about as you're going through change management. Find those people that will be the champions. Make the little inroads, you know, compare them to other, you know, their peers. Because and and one of the other things about law firms is very few law firms like to go first, but no one wants to be last. You know, if somebody else is doing something, they don't want to be too far behind that curve, but very rarely do they want to be on the, you know, the edge of that curve either. So understanding the room, being able to read that room 
find out what works with people that need to approve and get behind the change and then work in small increments to to implement that change. Don't try to do everything at once. Yeah, there's always that desire to boil the ocean, right? Yeah. And that's one of the biggest mistakes people make is they're trying to drive a change program. I agree 100%. Yeah, we talked about that on actually on my podcast a, a couple of weeks ago was that law firms don't like to prototype because lawyers in their head, and they use the example of if an associate turns in a draft brief to the partner, the associate is not turning in a draft. They are turning in what they hope is a final, that there would be no comments back to them. So they have worked and worked and worked and worked on that. And that mindset, I think, also goes into implementing any type of innovation, any type of change management is that because we don't like to prototype, we want things to be perfect on the first run. And that's that's a mistake that you have to, especially when, you, when you're trying on process improvement, you want to be able to throw something against the wall and see if it sticks. See if this works. Get some feedback because otherwise you'll end up creating a, a solution that's seeking a problem rather than finding out the problem and creating that solution. That's a dynamic that I've encountered for many decades. You're absolutely right. This uh, solution in search of a problem versus going back and identifying the problem is such a typical mistake people make, particularly lawyers, but people make it all the time. And it inhibits the ability to you know, tech companies fail fast and correct it and move on, right? Yeah. And we, we have a tendency not to do that in the legal industry. Yeah, and I think we're applying the innovation part of it and we're equating it with the legal dynamic of the legal advice of the firm. You obviously don't want to do something that diminishes the legal advice and expertise that, that you're doing, but you have to separate that. And so when you're doing the innovation, it's got to be in a way that you can experiment, that you can test certain things and not feel like if we fail, it's going to cost somebody their property, their money. And so I, I understand the pressures there, but somehow or another, you, you've got to be able to do that prototyping in a way that doesn't increase the risk of your clients. And that's, that's very doable. It just takes a different mindset. Oh, that's right. Now, you're the chief knowledge service officer of Jackson Walker. You've got an interesting portfolio underneath you. I'm not sure I've seen a combination of functions quite like that. You've got the library, the research team, conflicts intake, and RFP prep, if I have that right. Maybe I'm missing something. We also have one of the people under me does all of our pitch materials as well. Part of How that, that is, that, yeah, I was going to say part of that is that I've always had a really close relationship, whether it was here at Jackson Walker or when I was at King and Spalding before this, really good relationship with the marketing and business development team and have encouraged them to leverage the intelligence and talent in the library and research teams for that, you know, due diligence work, for that know your client work, for the research that needs to be done that we could be doing to get better information out to the attorneys or to the clients and then use the, the marketing and business development team, enhance that to make sure that it's that we're focused in the right direction so that whatever the attorneys are doing in developing their business, that we're supporting that strategy. And so that you've got this great talent over here doing what they do best and then passing it along to the marketing business development team who's doing what they do best and then getting that 
great information to the attorney who then she's doing what she does best. And that's going out, talking with these clients and bringing in business. So it's worked out really well. And if you sit back and think about it, you know, it does make sense. But if you just look at it on the surface, it it does get confusing on why that would happen here. It's so interesting the way you sort of describe the relationship part of this, because I think one of the challenges law firms as organizations have are the internal organizational barriers, the desires to act as silos. And it sounds like you've spent a career sort of breaking down those silos and building relationships, which sounds incredibly important to your success. Yeah, it is. And I think it was one of the reasons why we started the Three Geeks in a Law Blog back in the late 2000s, I think 2008, was that... I had friends that were in all of these different departments and we would sit around and we would talk and it could be people that were in my firm. It could be people that were in other firms and we would sit around and talk about what are we running up against? What things worked better, you know, or how, how could we set these up to, to work better? And it almost always came down to communication across all of these departments that law firms had this wealth of talent on the business side and operation side, but that it wasn't really coordinated. And I, I think a good COO sees that and would be able to make sure that if the IT department is implementing something that the recruiting department uses, that that tool may also work well, or it may be an augmentation for something that this other department is doing. And if you can have that communication, I always say on the podcast that uh, all problems are communication problems. And so if you can have that communication, you can understand what each other is, is doing or you're comfortable and reaching out across different departments and, and getting feedback from them. It's amazing the things that you can do that you thought you couldn't do because you just didn't have the information. Yeah, I think that's right. But that's much easier said than it is done. Both people are not, if, you know, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Right, Steve? Yeah, that's <laughs> right. People tend to be the problem. You, you mentioned your blog, which started in 2008, which had to be, if not the first, one of the first legal blogs generally, but certainly I think the first on sort of the business of law, the operations, the what we now know as legal ops. Yeah. You know, what, it, what caused it, you to start that? So how it initially started was uh, Lisa Salazar, who was on the marketing team at Fulbright, and Toby Brown, who's now at uh, Perkins Coie, but at the time was at Fulbright, and I were at lunch, and Lisa had talked about it and was like, you know, Toby at that time was in KM, and I was in library, and she was in marketing, and she's like, you know, there's just not a blog out there that really talks about the business side of the law firm. Why don't we start one? And on a whim, we was like, yeah, let, let's do it. And then the idea was, you know, we would each just kind of talk about what's going on in, in our departments. I remember I was a King and Spalding at the time and, and I had asked permission to make sure that it was OK to start this blog. And I told him, I was like, you know, I'm not going to mention anything specific that we're doing. I'm talking generalities. And they were like, OK, yeah, just, you know, just don't mention the firm. And then after a year or two, we started winning awards. And then all of a sudden they were like, so uh, how do we get you uh, King the firm? name on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how do you how do you get to our name in there? So and it was one of the things when I came over to Jackson Walker in 2012, you know, I told them that I was doing this. I mean, they obviously already knew. 
But uh, they were very, very encouraging. It's like, no, look, we want you to continue doing this because you're getting some insights on this side of the operations that we couldn't get otherwise. And so they've been very, very supportive of continuing doing the blog. Talk it's, a little bit about the it's, blog. <laughs> it's a great blog. No, it's a fabulous. I'm, I'm one of your fans of the blog. But you talk about deriving insights from the blog and from the contributions. Obviously, you make contributions, but your co-authors, you now have a number of people who contribute to the blog. Give us a couple of examples of some of the insights you've derived from your experience in the blog. Yeah. My good friend, Toby Brown has really, I I would say he more than anyone, I think has driven the idea of profitability and law firm metrics. And and so I think that's been one of the things I, I can tell you this, that there was a time when if I was in a partner meeting and I said the word profitability, I would have been ushered out of the room. And then now it's almost, you know, expected that it's not just about the revenue. It's about the profitability of the firm. It's about how much of that dollar that's coming into the door gets turned into profit. And, you know, so and when you look at it that way, sometimes people that bring in a lot of money don't bring in a lot of profit. And if you can point out ways to improve that line, then, you know, it's a win-win for everyone. So that's definitely one of the things that, that I've learned. We've recently, over the past few years, Casey Flaherty has been contributing a lot and he always has, he's, he's a little bit long on the uh, <laughs> talks. We, and we have a running gag on that. And I, I always tell him, I said, Casey, you know, if I were to write that, it would be, this is part one of a five part, <laughs> five part <laughs> series uh, and not just one, but Casey does great work. He has great insights, always has. And it's really cool to be talking with someone. And I've done this in specifically with Casey is I'll have somebody talking and say, oh, you know, I just, just read this thing, da, 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 by this guy. And I was like, you mean Casey? And I was like, yeah, he, he writes from the blog that I founded. <laughs> so you, right. you want me to reach out to him? You can talk to him. So it's it's been this nice. And that's one of the things that I've always done is, is try to bring it back to the office as well, not just keep it to myself, but to share a lot of the information with my peers, both here in the office and external as well. And so three years ago, you expanded your social media empire by adding a podcast, the Geek and Review podcast. And you've had some tremendous guests on. I'm very jealous. What have you learned from doing the podcast? So the podcast was Marlene Gay Bauer's idea. She's my co-host or I'm her co-host, I guess. And she had been after Toby and I to do this for probably two or three years before we actually started it. And so she she had a little more insight into this than I did. And then when I finally had some time to think about it, and then we kind of looked around at other podcasts that we liked, that the format, especially when there was, you know, a, a man and a woman as co-host on how that relationship goes. So we kind of uh, borrowed heavily from a, a marketplace podcast called uh, Make Me Smart with uh, Kai Rizdahl and, and Molly Wood. And so we decided that we would set it up that way that we would have some type of introduction on it, a little bit of news, and then go into an interview process. And so it has been just crazy amazing for the past three years. And I think it's really interesting when people ask me, you know, what what's the most enjoyable thing about it is I will say is it's kind of like this. And you, you know, Steve, there is absolutely no other reason that a lot of these people would 
talk to me or I would have a reason to reach out to talk to them if it weren't for the podcast. So, you know, it was like a couple of weeks ago, we had two authors that were, one was in Finland and one was in Germany that wrote a legal design book. Why would I have reached out to them otherwise? And now it's this really good energy that goes back and forth. We have maintained relationships with a lot of people that we've talked to. And, you know, the whole focus of the podcast itself is on creativity and innovation in the legal space. And it was funny because that's in the book that the designers wrote, the definition of design is creativity plus innovation equals design. So I was joking. I said, well, apparently we, we created a legal design uh, podcast and didn't know it. <laughs> and you didn't even know it, did you? Didn't even know it. Didn't even know it. There you go. See, we, we all learn. We learn from our guests as much as the guests learn from us, I guess. It has been an interesting, I've, I've seen, I've, I felt that dynamic myself. I learned a lot from talking to people. And your point's an interesting one where, you know, you, you may know somebody or you may have run across them or you may follow them, follow your blog, for example. But this gives you an opportunity and a reason to reach out and have a conversation that, that hopefully listeners enjoy. I mean, I know they certainly do on your podcast. Yeah. And, and we have fun. That's, I think that's one of the things that you really kind of gather from it is, you know, Marlene and I have been friends for 10, 11 years, you know, and it's this nice going back and forth. We know each other. We know each other's families. And it's just a fun friendship that we've been able to spin into this podcast. We're there to talk seriously, but to have fun about that topic. Yeah. If you can't have a little fun while you're doing it, what's the point, right? Exactly. Talk to me about your research attorneys. I'm now moving back up into your, your day job, Yeah, obviously, yeah. Um, but that's an interesting function as well. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's something that we kind of started in a way by default when I was at King and & Spaulding and really implemented here when I moved over to Jackson Walker. And that was, I was finding there was a lot of talent that was sitting on the sidelines so when I came over here in 2012, it was just toward the end of the Great Recession. You know, those, those poor law students who graduated in 2010, 2011 were really struggling because once you're kind of out of that OCI to partnership track of the profession, it is really hard to get back on track there. And not only that, but that type of work isn't for everyone. And so what I did was I pitched the idea of creating a research team where we would have licensed attorneys that would be able to do whatever work they could go work elbow to elbow with any of the attorneys, except they were going to be under me. They weren't going to be in a practice group and they were going to be essentially like plug and play. They were going to be generalist. If there was a team that needed someone, whether it was for 15 minutes or for two two days or a week, we could plug them in, uh, have them do the work, pull them back out when they're done and put them on to the next thing. And it was funny because when I pitched the idea, I really got some feedback from some of the partners who said, look, we're never going to get the talent that would fit this firm that it, we don't need. And I think they were thinking more like, you know, staff attorney kind of roles, which at the time were more e-discovery things or, you know, and I think you have either practice support lawyers or KM lawyers uh, there at SIFAR who are very narrow specialist on particular legal issue. But these were more general. We got 16, 17 practice groups and they could literally be plugged into any one of those at any time and would have to perform. And people love that. They love that type of challenge. They love that diversity so that they're not just doing the same thing day in, day out. And the other nice thing was we promised them that 
This is a position where you go home at night, you go home at night. You don't have to be checking your email. You can leave it behind. And one of my first hires actually was a UT grad, Order to the Coif, had been on law review, but she at that time did not want to be on a partnership track. Turns out later she did and we moved her over. And so that was one of the things I used to say that this was not a backdoor way in, but we've now <laughs> shifted some a, a number of people over. So it's uh, has kind of become a unofficial uh, recruiting tool sometimes, but that's not what the primary focus is. And so I've noticed that other firms have started looking at this. In fact, I laugh because apparently the University of North Texas has a case study on this that I didn't realize that. Uh, oh, really? They, they, they didn't talk to study. you about it, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up hiring somebody that, that went there and she told me, it's like, you know, there's a case study about this, right? I was like, oh, great. <laughs> uh, great. Right. Well, it's, it, it's fascinating because I think there's so much talent out there that's underutilized and finding creative ways. Back when I started, there was just one way. You're a lawyer, you know, you were an, you were an associate and you work the weekends and you work the nights and that model just doesn't work. And it works for some people, yeah. but as a universal model, it doesn't work. And you've got to have the flexibility to attract talent and develop them and be flexible for them, I think. Yeah. And I think the nice thing is that, again, there are so many people that would just be fantastic at a, at a firm if you can find the right work method for them, something that works for the firm and something that works for them. And for far too long, like you said, it's the one way or you're out, you know, it's either do this. But then that also leads to the fact that there's so many of the law students now that are coming in with the expectation of, I'm going to do this for four years, pay off my student loans, and I'm getting the hell out of here. Mm -hmm. And that's a shame because you get really good talent and there's no need to try to beat them to death while you got them and not look at it and say, hey, we'd really like to you know, have you long term. Or if it doesn't work out, we want to make sure that you're not burnt out. And if you need to go in-house or something, great, we'll help you get there. You'll be a great alum of the firm. But right now, I think it's, it's too much about the money and too much about the work and not so much about the lifestyle and the relationships. I, I think yep. that's that's a shame. Yep. Great point. Well, Greg, we've gone over our time, but it's been great uh, meeting you and talking to you. Thanks so much for spending time with us. Thank you, Stephen. This is great. I love your show and I can't wait to hear more. Right back at you. I feel the same way about yours. Keep up the great work. You're making a big difference in the profession. Thanks for that. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.